Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Hello, and before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to give you a little update on what's going to happen with this podcast over my maternity leave. Because if you've been listening for a while, then you'll know that from October the 14th, I'm going to be on maternity leave, probably coming back at some point in January, but no specified date yet. But fear not, this podcast is one of my favourite things to do. And I really value you guys as listeners. I don't think I tell you enough. I'm often told by people in my life that I'm not very good at giving compliments. And I think that has uh, translated into my podcasting. And I don't tell you guys how much I appreciate you as much as other podcasters do. And I I really do, though. (laughs) And as I said, I love recording this podcast. I love writing the content for the podcast. And I love doing the interviews. So... The podcast shall continue. Um, We've already recorded, in fact, most of the episodes that are going to go out across my maternity leave. However, there will be some breaks. So in order to make sure we're giving you content consistently, we've, we've planned to take a few breaks of just a week or two weeks here and there, where we're going to have a little pause in the content uh, just so that we can keep up with ourselves and make sure it keeps going through the whole maternity leave period. So the best thing you can do to make sure that that doesn't disrupt you and that you don't miss any of the episodes that we put out there is to make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. So whatever podcast app you use, whether it's Apple, Spotify, um, Google Podcasts, or we're on Amazon now as well, you can click the subscribe button and this podcast will be delivered to you every week, um, every week that we put one out. So please do make sure that you're subscribed so that you don't miss any of the episodes that we do put out there. Another thing that I'd uh, like to encourage you to do if you haven't done it already is please, please, please leave us a review. So you might have seen the podcast is starting to do quite well in some of the charts and we're picking up a bit of traction, which is amazing. But the way that Apple decides how many people get to see this podcast is by how many reviews it's got. So please, if you haven't done so yet, leaving us a review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts, it really makes a big difference to how many people can find us. So I'd really appreciate it if you could put the word out there for me just by leaving us a quick review. All right, on with the episode. Today I'm with Tracy Lewis and I'm lucky enough to know Tracy through the School for Social Entrepreneurs. And I knew as soon as I met her that I wanted her to be a guest on this podcast and I really wanted her to lead a Do More Than Therapy Masterclass. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have her here to talk to us about getting started in social entrepreneurship. So welcome to the podcast, Tracy. Oh, hello. Uh, Thank you very much for that lovely welcome. (laughs) So can we get started uh, with you just letting us know a bit about who you are and who you help? Yeah, no, absolutely. So... I'm Tracy. I live in Montpellier in Bristol, just by the lovely St. Andrew's Park. And I live here with my daughter, Kira, who's 18. And I 
do a few few different things. So I'm a social business consultant. So I run online courses and coaching specifically for women who are in the process of setting up their own business or, uh, you know, looking at trying to take it to that next stage. Um, I also run my own social enterprise. So that's how I've met you, Rosie, um, through SSA, doing the trade-up program also, because my social enterprise, Catalyze Change, which I've been running now as co-founder and director for the last five and a half years, is all about inspiring, empowering and skilling uh, girls and young women as sustainability leaders and change makers. And then in my spare time, <laughs> I also lead the Women in Sustainability Hub here in Bristol and also the their freelancer and entrepreneur hub. So, you know, I run a lot of different events and courses for, for women who, who are working for themselves or thinking about it. I totally love the multi-hyphenated life, <laughs> as you know, at least three businesses going on there. So busy, busy lady. Um, but I was just wondering if you could talk to us a bit about your journey, because we're, we're going to get into some practical steps that people need to take when they're setting up as a social enterprise. But I think, I suspect anyway, that some people listening to this might actually be social entrepreneurs and not know it. Because I know we've spoken in the past about the fact that when I started out in private practice, I always had this group of clients that I would see for a reduced rate. And I would use the, the money that I made from clients that were paying my full rate in order to subsidize those sessions. But I never understood that that was a model of social entrepreneurship. I'd never heard that word before. Mm. I just thought, oh, that's you know what I want to do and was just doing it as a sole trader. And it wasn't until really quite recently, until I talked to Asha Patel, who I recorded a podcast with right back at the beginning of this podcast, probably about 18 months ago now. Um, that I was like, I am a social entrepreneur. <laughs> and that's how I, when I started to get involved with SSE and, and the Trade Up program. Um, so I think it'd be really helpful to hear about your journey, how you got started, because people might recognize a bit of themselves in it, I think. So how did it all begin? Well, so, so much I could say. Where do I start? <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that point. Yeah, that absolutely. I think people get a little bit too hung up on, you know, what exactly is a social enterprise? Is it a, a legal status of some sort? But it really isn't. You know, there's different legal um, structures that you can use, which we'll talk about later. But really, it's just very broadly about using business to change the world for the better, you know, um, to create social and environmental value and change. So obviously so many of us are doing that through our work, through the different products and services. So, yeah, it's a very broad brush. And, um, yeah, hopefully then some of your listeners will uh, start to identify that they, they are also um, social entrepreneurs uh, through this podcast. I mean, I know that the first... Um, a uh, woman who really inspired me, and this is really going back now, so I, I don't worry, I'm not going <laughs> to go through my whole life step by step. I really did want to mention her because Anita Roddick from The Body Shop. And, you know, I'd never heard of social enterprise before that, but it was... Um, so inspiring to me that you could run a business and have these amazing products and yet you know they were doing these incredible campaigns and um you know making um uh you know, fair trade very visible and talking about how that you know the products that um, were being grown um you know often by women in you know uh, uh, parts of the world where they wouldn't normally be making much money they were actually you know helping them to have a livable income so you know i just found her so inspiring and then obviously um through the big issue as well that, that um I think came from the Body Shop Foundation. And so, 
Yeah, well, I went out to Australia and um, I really got involved in organic food and farming and permaculture, which is, um, again, you know, was sort of one of the early sort of practical applications of sustainability. And, you know, I suppose it just really inspired me out there because it's so incredibly beautiful. But that was the first time I really saw and witnessed, you know, real, you know, environmental degradation on a really, you know, vast level with virgin rainforest being deforested and um, plastic pollution. So, you know, I got very inspired with practical solutions, but also seeing how important it was. Um, to do something about it. So I kind of brought that back to the UK, that passion. Didn't even know if I could live in the UK anymore, but then discovered Bristol and went and asked the Soil Association for a job. So they're a charity, but also a social business um, making a difference around organic food and farming. So very early on as well, I was working for that, their not-for-profit certification company, which was, again, was working with businesses and through the, the income that was coming in from certification fees and other consultancy, that was then going into the charity to raise awareness. So again, that was kind of one of my very sort of early um, experience with, you know, how social enterprise can work to have that, that real, you know, great social and environmental impact. And um, I ended up working for the Soil Association for 18 years. So incredible, really. But um, I went on a lovely journey with them. So not just here in Bristol, but I, I managed their office, um, Organic Southwest, down in Cornwall. So that took me and my family down there for seven or eight years and then to Devon. Um, and I worked on lots of programs for them, supporting community businesses and social enterprises and obviously lots of organic food and farmers. So, um, yeah, I could really see that the value that, social and environmental business can do and um yeah it's just sort of an area that you know just seems to make sense to me so that's kind of really? in a nutshell <laughs> so a, tri a trip to australia basically set you on a path <laughs> which has culminated in where you are now so how did how did you go from working for a social enterprise at the soil association to setting up on your own what did that look like yeah, so I'd been, um, when the, the Soil Association office closed down in Cornwall, I carried on working for them as a project manager. And very much I was sort of working on my own from home, which was great because my, my daughter was very young then and I was a single parent. So it worked very well. And I still had the security of a monthly income coming in. And, you know, I could still get the support around sort of policy and IT and finance from Bristol. But more and more, I was working like a freelancer and I was working on programs where I was learning how to set up the website and the social media. And I was doing all the partnership development. So I could see very clearly how I could work um, as a freelancer. And I guess I'd always wanted to set up my own business. I always remember with my dad that mum always, you know, he worked in his fa factory his whole life. I mean, yeah, he did take early retirement and he was a very, you know, sort of active, happy person. But I kind of always remember that, oh, dad should have worked for himself. He'd have been really good. And you sort of you get to 40, you think, well, if I don't do it soon, I, you know, <laughs> I'm never going to do it. So I kind of already started making plans. Then I moved back to Bristol and they were like, oh, you need to come back and work in the office. And I was like, I couldn't do that. Again, I couldn't even think about going back to work in an office nine to five. So that was sort of a good launch pad. And I got redundancy anyway, which kind of forced me to do it. So it's like I set up my own consultancy, um, you know, it's just starting to try and figure it out um, as I went, you know, using the skills and the networks um, that I developed through the Soil Association. 
But that was kind of a little bit of a rocky road. And I don't, and I think what was really interesting, actually, I think this is a really interesting insight that it was like, I was, I suddenly got this very strong calling around empowering and supporting young women. I was becoming more and more aware. I suppose my own daughter was growing up. I could see, you know, that they're going through a hard time, obviously, very obviously in other parts of the world, but here too. So that sort of really became my new purpose and took over from, um, um, organic food and farming, but still within sustainability, you know, it still had to be around sustainability for me, you know, that sort of was kind of a, um, a really important, important area to, to focus my attention, but working with young women instead. And um, so, yeah, I just started to, you know, become a, a voluntary youth business advisor and um, a trustee for a local uh, charity working to help end FGM and other in, uh, inequality um, issues. And, um yeah, I just started talking to people and doing lots of sort of research because I'd moved back to Bristol, asking around what other youth groups were there. Had anybody heard of anything like this? And that's when Catalyze Change was born. And I think, you know, it's definitely I still do my own consultancy, as you know, but, you know, Catalyze Change is the one that's really taken my real energy and passion and the one that's really grown and had the real impact. And I think that is one of the very important lessons I'd love to um, pass on really it is that thing about really coming from your why your purpose and really talking to people um, and letting it be born from that whereas my own consultancy which is called sustain live consulting sort of just I never did that sort of research or I never had that kind of passion behind it and so it's quite interesting seeing the two um, how they've evolved differently it's so interesting when you're connected to a real vision for how you want the world to be different. Mm. It does propel you, doesn't it? As soon as that starts lining up in your head and what you're doing day in, day out lines up with that vision properly, then you get the energy, you get the drive and stuff starts to grow. Totally. Whereas it, it can mm. feel like an uphill struggle when, you're, yeah. when there's a disconnect somewhere where it's not quite kind of lining up with that kind of vision, mission and values totally um, totally yeah. always talk about yeah and it's kind of almost like I didn't realize it at the time but it was like this really strong purpose this why that was growing and growing and then you know now obviously I suppose um since I've done more training and now I deliver courses myself it's you know very clear and everyone's talking about purpose-led it's got to be purpose-led but you know you've really got to feel that it's got to be really real you can't just say oh what's my purpose it's got to be something that you know really comes from within you and obviously there's different ways that you can identify that if it's not obvious that I you know work with women on my courses but um you know from there and I really recommend that book um start with why Simon Sinek that's very yeah I love that book yeah yeah and um yeah from there you can really then develop your vision and your mission um but yeah it, that's got to be a starting place absolutely and I, I always think that you can feel it in your body when you've got it yeah, because your body is like excited to work on this yeah, thing totally. rather than dreading mm. it, <laughs> as can yeah. sometimes be the case. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important area, and that's something that I really um, is something that I've developed myself a lot over the last five years. And I always talk to the women that I work with about really sort of trusting your intuition and really tapping into that. And I think that's sort of um, being able to be aware of your body and how it feels is such a sort of a key skill that we can sort of develop awareness to. Um, it's so, so, um, so important, isn't it, for any sort of decision making and for making sure that we are doing the right thing. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about Catalyze Change then. What is the vision for Catalyze Change? So it's um, 
we see a world where girls and young women are confident and happy, sustainability leaders and change makers. Um, so, you know, we offer a, a range of uh, learning and mentoring programs which really support them um, uh, within that vision. And um, yeah, I mean, it just started off really, well, as I said, with all these different conversations and set it up as a social enterprise with three other women. And we spent quite a lot of time thinking about, you know, our values and exactly what we were going to do. And then just launched it through a crowdfunder and did a three day residential program around sustainability, but a very holistic approach. So it's obviously, you know, looking at, you know, what is sustainability and what are the hard skills and the soft skills to work in sustainability, but also very much it's got a dimension around personal development and well-being because you can't be a change maker unless you, you know, fully believe in yourself and, um You've got to have that inner confidence. And I suppose, you know, that in many ways is one of the key things why we focus on women, because in terms of their, their empowerment and their confidence, there are a lot of reasons, um, you know, culturally and within our society and, um, you know, how girls are raised and how the media portray us that, you know, we don't have that. So that's why, you know, I think a female only space is very powerful and it really works. You know, when we did that first boot camp, it was just so incredible, the energy, the impact, the transformation, which is what's given you know, us the energy to, to continue with it. And that's how it now evolved. We put it all online two years ago when COVID hit, We've done it as a, a similar sort of format program, a three-day Catalyst Summit, we've called it instead. And it's going to be evolving into a longer program where they have the mentoring and we've set up an online platform for them. So during that six months, they're supported with, you know, peer networking, uh, masterclasses, meetups and a mentor to guide them through that that process. Mm, that's an incredible. There's so many incredible, inspiring things in there, not to mention the fact that you pivoted something so kind of grounded in the in-person world into the online space in response to COVID. Um, how has that been taken up by the women? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, when COVID hit, it was, um, there were, <laughs> you know, we've, we all had to do it, which, I mean, for me, I think it's been an incredible opportunity because it's allowed us to, you know, we can work with twice as many young women now from going from 30 to 60 within an online programme. And they're, you know, it's a lot more diverse. You know, they can come from anywhere around the UK, even the world. You know, we do have um, some young women joining us from other parts of Europe, um, even Africa and Asia in this last programme. So, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's interesting, you know, it's I, I really I think the programme really works, you know, but, but everyone seems to agree with me. Also, it means that we can have speakers and mentors from all over the country and all over the world. Mm. Um, you know, clearly we want to be able to balance that with some sort of you know outdoor face-to-face -face, um, experiences too going forward next year but um, it does work online and you know even if they do come together for an event for a few days or you know over a weekend for example still it's going to be the online space where they stay connected and continue that learning um, so yeah I think we've got to think about how we can actually resource it and you know continue to still be able to have the um face-to-face -face as well but I think the majority of what we're going to be doing will, will stay online and I think you know people are getting pretty used to that as well now so mm, yeah and I really like what you said about being able to have more diversity not just in the people that you're helping but also with the speakers yeah um because I've, I've definitely found that too I think there's you can reach out to 
to lots more people who might have real accessibility challenges yeah um, like I think you know from um, being with me on trade up I couldn't have done trade up if it hadn't been for coronavirus because I'm on my own a lot of the time with my children and I just could not have traveled to go to sessions it was only because it was online that I was able to access that yeah and you know as a single parent I'm sure that's kind of been forefront of your mind um of how you can help those people who might have you know come to parenthood very early I'm thinking for your kind of catchment Mm. area um (laughs) um yeah and it's just yeah, yeah speaking speakers and students I imagine really benefit from that yeah no absolutely and I also think you know if you've got speakers if people were just sitting in a room listening to a speaker then you don't actually have to be in that room so I had, was having an interesting conversation with my advisory board on it was last Friday actually it was our first in-person meeting again and it was lovely we went up to Ashton Court and um, Jessica one of the advisory board members she did this beautiful forest bathing session for us and it's like, well, actually, these are the sort of experiences where, you you know, it really special to meet in person, sort of that face to face, socializing, networking, um, that's that energy and also doing things in nature. But I also want, you know, I think the core program um, can and should remain online. And it's just about how you can add that sort of optional value if people are able to access that and want to. Mm, sounds really exciting. So. I guess, I mean, sometimes this can be perceived as an awkward question, but I'm pretty sure you'll give me a straight answer. So you started off with a crowdfunder to get going. Mm. Where does most of your funding come from now? Because I know often that Mm. really holds people back from even getting started, that they can't see how they might develop a sustainable income for a project. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult. It's sort of an ongoing issue. And that was why I joined the Trade Up programme, really, to look at how we could develop the business model and, you know, scale what we're doing. Um, The majority of our income comes through corporate sponsorship. And it seems that that's going to be, continue to be the main area and the area that we're going to pursue. Um, We do charge for some of the tickets for events, but that's still quite a small part of the income. We have had some grant funding for specific projects um, and to help us get started. But, you know, clearly for many reasons, that's not an area we want to to go down. So it's looking at how we could become more business-like around working with corporates. So it's not just about them saying, oh, well, you know, we'll give you some money for a bursary. It's more about, well, actually, we're also performing a service for you for um, in terms of, you know, the women coming in and gaining skills as mentors. You know, clearly it's helping with their CSR targets as well. But also it's, you know, more than that, because actually they need um, a diverse and young workforce. So it's looking about how we can be supporting young women, you know, because we get some really incredible young women and we've already done the recruitment, done a lot of the training, done that sort of empowerment work. And some of the young women who are then going into internships with companies are, you know, they're really delighted with them. So we're kind of now looking at how that can be more of a sort of a formal route that we can work with businesses on. Obviously, because of our target audience with young women, um, you know, 18 to 24, they aren't actually in a, a time of their life when, you know, they, they do have access to um, much money. So it's kind of like we've got to, you know, we can't be getting much of it directly from them. I think that is so important to recognise that there are other ways of getting money, because I think often we we jump to, oh, 
we can only help people in private practice who can pay us directly. Mm. And then maybe if we go one step away from that, we start to think about things like grant funding. But a lot of us are quite frightened of that because it is this kind of boom or bust. It feels Mm. like, you know, you get funding, you provide something and then, oh, God, I can't carry that project on, even though it's really helping people because there's... I haven't managed to secure it for the next time. It's quite a stressful way of working. And when you're offering a yeah. health service, mm. it can feel um, mm. a little bit anxiety provoking. Mm. Um, so it's really interesting to hear you talk about a relationship with corporates and mm. what that could look like. Yeah. People. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because, I mean, if you're working with beneficiaries who, you know, obviously um, – don't have the income themselves or you know for whatever other reason it wouldn't be you know be appropriate to be charging them at the sort of the full rates um and you know also if you want to be helping people you know who are in different types of social or low low income situations um you know there's different yeah there are different ways to to bring in funding so yeah it's being creative about that and I think just also getting really clear, isn't it, on what your offer is, who your beneficiaries are, and then you can start to you get more creative with how you can achieve that. And I'm not saying it's easy. It really isn't. You know, it's sort of a constant battle and it's really stopping our expansion at the moment. Um, but this year we're starting to look at a membership model, um, which, you know, still might be possible. But again, you know, you have to explore these different things, but maybe that's not the right route for us. I'm not sure. But, you know, those, there's a lot of opportunities now, aren't there, with digital communities, um, either directly through membership or, you know, now we've got this online community, we can then look at upselling, you know, masterclasses and courses. So I think that could also be a way once we've got, you know, some really good value um, and a larger community that there's, you know, there still can be um, good income opportunities that way as well. You've just got to be looking at, you know, diverse, diversifying your income, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and making sure that you've got that time to think creative, creatively mm. about how you can bring the money into the business. Mm. I think often we don't give ourselves that time to step back and think who is actually benefiting from this project because it might not just be the people that you're directly working with there might be other people who are also benefiting who could have a stake in it yeah Um, totally I mean that's why these courses are great you know like um because I also did the school for social entrepreneurs or SSE their startup course also I've worked for them as well so I know that they do lots of different uh, really good courses and I've seen there's quite a few different ones available at the moment in Bristol in the southwest anyway but they're they are a national network of schools so um yeah I mean they provide really good uh, business training and the business canvas model that's sort of always a good exercise I think for really looking more broadly at the opportunities in your business and um you know what what, what the challenges what the opportunities are yeah absolutely and I'll definitely link to the school for social entrepreneurs so that people can check that out Mm. and because I think there's a lot of people who are struggling thinking why can't I solve this myself and it's like of course you can't this is complicated yeah yeah (laughs) and there is support available out there so you've mentioned SSE already was there anywhere Mm. else that you got some really valuable support when you were getting set up yeah I started I did the first um one of the modules of the entrepreneurial spark that was attached to nat west i'm not sure if it still is but they have hubs in different parts of the country 
Also, I know Unlimited, they do courses or can provide some business support with seed funding in the same way that SSE do. And also, I'm just thinking as well, I just heard recently about Weka. So this is our, the West of England regional development support, which I assume other regions have too. And they're offering um, business coaching grants at the moment. So again, I mean, I think you know, I think if you can, it's really good to get a coach because that can really help you get really focused much more quickly on what your needs are and help you to sort of really get that sort of accountability and big picture thinking and help you to drill it down into a, an achievable action plan. So I think, you know, if you've got funds to do that, it's good good to look for your own coach. Absolutely. I completely agree. Hmm. So if somebody is thinking about starting up a social enterprise, but they're feeling a little bit intimidated or overwhelmed by the idea right now what are the first few things they need to start thinking about to get set up yes I mean we've already touched on you know really that sort of big picture thinking about you know what's your big idea what problem do you want to solve and then that sort of that time delving into your purpose or your why um, which then can lead into you know vision and mission I think just as important as that um, you know it needs to start straight away is actually talking to people. You've got to talk to your customers or your potential clients if, you know, they aren't your customers yet. And there's so many different ways to do that. So I know people could say, oh, but I don't know who they are. How do I access them? You know, we've got this whole wealth of resources now, just quick polls. I do polls on like my Instagram stories, or you can do them on Twitter as well, can't you? And Facebook. Um, just picking up the phone to talk to people <laughs> is a really good way. Sometimes that we forget about, don't we? And, you know, LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn is an amazing resource. And um, so we've all got, you know, those sort of 30 people who, you know, we know of who are sort of key stakeholders, even if they're not actually customers or potential customers. And I just think you've got to talk to people really and find out what they want, find out what their problems are. Um so, yeah, I think that's that's kind of a key one. So I always do that. I, I run um, a social business course for women. And um, so I do one around vision and purpose. But the next one is on understanding your customers. And I think you could interchange them because I think you've got to start talking to people straight away. <laughs> oh, I could not agree more. I think one of the things I talk about the most on this podcast is how you shouldn't try and second guess it actually talk <laughs> yeah. um, but it's it's difficult isn't it we can get in our heads about that and we can find it difficult to reach out mm. to certain groups so you mm. mentioned um using polls and instagram stories and, and that kind of thing um and a bit about linkedin but can you remember where did you start when you first had the idea for catalyze change how did you start reaching out well, I just started talking to people. I felt a bit embarrassed about it, really. I remember I did one of those ULab courses. I don't know. Um, I don't know whether you've heard of ULab, but um, it, it comes from the States and you, you can get these, do these free online courses. And we had like a little hub in Bristol. So we used to watch the online events, but have like a small coaching circle. And that really helped me to actually start feeling the confidence to express it and really some sort of interesting techniques that they use. So I suppose it's kind of like an action. So you could kind of say it was like an action learning set like we did with Trade Up. So I think it's having that sort of accountability buddy or partner that you can just start exploring the idea and then start testing the waters. Like I used to just go for cups of tea with different people around Bristol who I knew were working in quite sort of strategic positions or around sustainability and just have that chat and just sort of 
scope it out with them. But in terms of actually practically doing focus groups with our target audience, yeah, I was so scared about it because I literally hadn't worked with young people. I mean, that's why I felt a bit silly, really. You know, clearly I worked in sustainability. I knew how to set up a social business and manage a project, et cetera, but I'd never worked with young people. So it was a bit like mm-hmm. gulp. And then just asked um, a teacher down at Colston Girls School, which is just at the bottom of the hill and where my daughter was at the time, if we could come in and run a focus group around sustainability. And they were like, of course, yeah, no problem. And it's like, okay, <laughs> it's that easy. And um, it's that yes. creative thinking, though, it's that extra step to think, mm. okay, I don't have access, I don't have direct access to this group of people. Mm. Who do I know that does, who might be able to facilitate that? Totally, totally. Yeah. And, you know, like, um, you know, obviously, because I'm, I'm working with young people, but schools and youth groups and the council have like umbrella organisations and they're always looking for volunteers. You know, and as I said before, I became a trustee of a charity and uh, joined the youth, the youth enterprise as a voluntary business advisor. So, I mean, you know, that's just within young people but every sector is always looking for volunteers and people who can help out or there's always different conferences and events and if you if you volunteer to help like so for example I spent a year volunteering as a steward for the Friday for the Futures March for young people because actually these are young people who are really motivated and care about climate change so that was like my ideal target audience I mean you know clearly I wanted to help but, you know, it's actually if you do something like that, then you're going to be sort of accepted into people's networks and um, have the opportunity to talk to them. Absolutely. And I think one thing that I couldn't recommend more is getting embedded in your local social enterprise network. Mm. Like meet people like you trying to make a difference in the world. Yeah, and yeah. you find ways of helping each other out and you promote mm. each other, um, which I, I think that's been one of the most powerful things that I've done, certainly. Yeah, no, totally. And it just gives you so many different ideas. And yeah, like you just see that what other people are doing and then you bounce off each other. And also, you know, it can feel quite lonely, can't it? Especially, you know, if you're working on your own as um, a sole trader, freelancer, or you just set up your own business, you feel that sort of, it can feel quite lonely. So yeah, it's really important to be around like-minded people and you know, there's always loads of networking meetings. I mean, you know, obviously I live in Bristol and sustainability networking is brilliant, but, um, you know, I'm sure wherever you live, you'll find something. But now, because everything's online too, it's it's like even, you know, um, even more opportunities. Yeah, that's totally true. I'm still kind of plugged into the Plymouth um, Social Enterprise Network, even though we've moved and now I couldn't possibly go to an in-person meeting. So again, there's so much more opportunity, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, people, you, you mentioned the sole trader word, I mentioned it earlier. Um, and I know that there's quite a lot of anxiety out there about the legal side of social enterprise. And am I really one <laughs> is a question that comes up quite a lot. Can you yeah. just say a little bit about the truth behind that? Because I think there's some myths. Yeah, I mean, it clearly, there are a whole range of different legal structures which are suitable for social enterprises. And it can be a bit of a minefield. So, you know, I'd always say to someone, you know, do some reading about it and get some professional advice. So, for example, you know, SSE Unlimited, there's loads on their website. And by doing one of their courses, you will be able to explore that. But, you know, you don't, nobody dives in and sets up a, a legal structure or you shouldn't. So, again, you've got to do this whole process around your purpose, your vision, your customers to actually know what your objectives are and what activities you're going to deliver. And then the structure would come from there. In terms of whether 
you can be a social um, enterprise, a social entrepreneur as a sole trader, or even as a limited company, you can totally, because it's about your objectives, but you, you should have clarity about that in your governing document. So that, that actually is embedded in terms of um, your social and environmental objectives should be clear within your, your company objects or, you know, your, your constitution or what, you know, whatever it is that you've got. So that there is something there is something that is showing that that's the driving purpose behind your business. And, um, you know, because clearly the whole point of the legal structures for social enterprise is that um, it then has that community interest or that social or environmental um, objective and value actually embedded into it. And they have things such as asset lock. So you can't just then make lots of money and use it for personal gain or you know, put it out to the Cayman Islands, for example. It is got, you know, it is, there is some sort of legal clause that, you know, you are saying what, that, that, you, that you, you are doing what you say you are, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and I think the legal structures, in, in my understanding, it's worth looking into those if you need somebody to trust you with, public money or with grant funding yeah because because you know if you think about it if you were a grant funding organization or if, if you were um say a local authority you would want to know that asset lock was in place yeah that, that money okay. could only be used um mm. for projects that related to that social mission yeah um whereas i think there are other ways of doing social enterprise where those legal structures can become a bit limiting mm. um, and I've certainly met people who have, have chosen to keep their businesses as limited companies mm. so that they can access things like you know venture capitalism mm. and, and and take things to a, a different kind of a level so I think you're spot on really you can't make the decision about your structure until you know exactly how you want to change the world and what sort of mission you're going to use to do that yeah 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 no totally you need to get that clarified and there's it's not something that you should rush into and I think you know as you start to develop and grow and especially like you say if you want to bring in uh, people to help you such as you know um, a board who can bring in expertise and credibility um, you know, clearly, if you, you don't want to be having um, any um, personal um, liability. So obviously, that's why where a limited structure um, or other legal structure come come into uh, play. But yeah, if you want to actually um, get a grant or other investment, then that's when you obviously need these type of structures. But I think, yeah, I think people get too hung up on about that at the beginning. I think that's something that can develop with time and you don't need to rush into it and a lot of these sort of um startup programs and seed funding that we've mentioned you can still get those as a sole trader or and or a limited company yeah absolutely and I, I really would recommend I know we keep referring to it but checking out those free resources that are available mm. in the school for social entrepreneurs I think SEUK also had some blog posts I found really helpful thinking mm. about this stuff at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and just not, not holding yourself back because you don't know exactly what legal structure you're going to be. No. Get started. No. Yeah. And then when you've had those good conversations with your community, it will solidify in your mind how this needs to look legally to make that yeah. happen. Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah. There's a really great book, actually. Um, Heidi Fisher 
on social enterprise. So if you're quite, if you're serious about it, that's, it's called how to set, successfully set up and grow a social enterprise, Heidi L. Fisher. Oh, so amazing. And that's a very useful book. I'll link to that in the show notes so that people can find it because that sounds like a really useful one. Yeah, really comprehensive, but very clear, you know, very easy to read. So I guess this might be a difficult question to answer, but how would somebody know if social enterprise is the right route for them? I think when you're doing purpose-led work that has got, you know, social and or environmental objectives a bit at its heart, then you you know, like you've already said, you you are <laughs> you are a social entrepreneur. So, you know, why not, you know, be part of that community? Why not have that, you know, value add and credibility that you are a social enterprise? Um, yeah, because it can be a bit of a lonely place as a small business or as a sole trader out there. And, you know, so many other there are so many um, or people saying, oh, we're purpose led. But a lot of the time, I think it might be meaningless. So, you know, why not really embed yourself in that world? And, you know, if you are able to get the, the recognition for it and the support, then, you know, that's only going to sort of help you grow. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important message for a lot of people listening to this kind of allow yourself to own it. <laughs> if yeah. you are values driven in your work, then yeah. own that and allow yeah. yourself the title. It was a game changer for me, actually, when I took that on board. Um, so one thing that I asked you before we came on air um, and I thought would be really useful for people to hear is what two action steps psychologists and therapists listening to this, you think they might be interested in starting out in social enterprise should take what would be the first steps you'd recommend well sorry to repeat myself but um i do think the first most important one is just to start talking to your customers or your you know potential clients or beneficiaries because until you have those conversations about what people actually want or what they need and how they perceive you to be um then it's impossible for you to sort of develop the idea and to make any decisions so just start having those conversations um yeah I'd say that's kind of most I love the um Seth Godin do you ever read Seth Godin I get his daily blog he really inspires me and he's done so many amazing books around marketing and um there's a quote from him that stood out for me when I was looking through my um um one of some of my workbooks today and it says don't find customers for your products find products for your customers so oh, you know, at, really having the customers at the heart of whatever you do I think we did a we did a session didn't we with SSE around that customer centric and it's that, that 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 same sort of um ethos that you've got to be doing everything in conversation with them and developing your business um with your customers because it isn't anything without them is it <laughs> no and then one other thing that I always do with women on my course at the end of the first session is um, I ask them to go away and write a letter to themselves from three years in the future. So to just sort of take that time out and just to really visualize themselves in three years time and, you know, where they really want to be with their business. What would that look like? Where would that, what would that feel like? You know, where would they be working? Who would they be working with? And, um, you know, what advice would they then give to their younger self now? And I just find that as a really creative way to help sort of unleash that sort of um, some clarity and ideas and also inspiration about where you might want to be going. 
I love that idea. I really love that because I think so often we don't give ourselves the time to unleash our creative spirits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and taking that time to really reflect and using an exercise like that to do it, I think would be so valuable. So I am going to go away and do that one. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much. You shared a lot of value in this interview. Um, and I'm very excited to say that you're coming and sharing even more with us in the Do More Than Therapy membership. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, if you're not in the Do More Than Therapy membership already, then this is our monthly membership where we teach masterclasses to help you grow your practice and take it in whatever direction you want to go in, whether that's you know passive income streams, online courses, becoming a social enterprise, whatever it is, it's about growing and, and becoming bigger than where you are right now um, and Tracy is coming in to teach our October masterclass so if you'd like to hear more from Tracy then obviously you can come and join us in the Do More Than Therapy membership and we would love to have you so I shall link to that in the show notes for anybody who's interested but I think there are going to be lots of people that want to look you up after this Tracy so where's the best place for people to come and find you? So I've uh, got a website um uh, tracylewis.co.uk um, also I'd love to connect on LinkedIn so um, I'm Tracy Lewis T-R-A-C-I-L-E-W-I-S um, on LinkedIn It'd be really great to connect so do just drop me a note and uh, I'm on Twitter at tracylewis79 so yeah that's um, those would be good places to connect yeah and I really do hope to hope to meet you in October I'm really looking forward to it so thanks for the opportunity Rosie fantastic I will link to all of those places in the show notes so if you want to connect with Tracy head over to the show notes in your podcast player and all of her links will be there and make it super easy for you thank you so much Tracy oh thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode of the business of psychology podcast If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.